The following talk was given at the Sati Center for Buddhist Studies in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at sati.org. Okay, so um, we come to the fourth of four talks on the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. And uh, again, just let me briefly recap where we've come so far. We joined the Buddha in Rajagaha, uh, and as he was staying just outside of Rajagaha in the uh, ancient empire of Magadha. And <clears throat> uh, not far from uh, Bodh Gaya or south of Patna in modern Bihar. And uh, we saw that uh, he was confronted with the threat uh, of war and asked for his advice on the threat of war that uh, King Ajatasattu wanted to invade the Vajis. We've seen the Buddha's response to that and we've seen him then embark on his uh, last journey heading north up through Nalanda, up through Patna or Pataliputta, up through the land of the Vajis and through to the land of the Malas. And uh, there in the land of the Malas, in the little town called Kusinara, uh, we finally uh, uh, saw the Buddha reaching the destination of his Parinibbana. And we left him, I believe, last week with his final words. Is, is that correct? We had the Buddha's final words last week. I think that was right. Okay, very good. So let me uh, screen share and we will pick up from there. Now, this week I'm hoping... Um, probably forlornly, but anyway, look, I'm hoping uh, to have a little bit less of me talking this week and a little bit more space for questions and conversation from you lot. Um, so please do uh, put any questions you have in there. If you have any doubts or problems or whatever, pop them in the chat. I will get to them if, I, uh, if it's at all possible. And uh, don't, and just remember, uh, you might die today right and you don't want to go to your deathbed not having taken the opportunity to clarify your doubt okay so just 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 ask doesn't matter how stupid they are in fact more stupid the better stupid questions are much more fun all right Our smart questions are also fun but anyway okay so let's uh now i'll see if i can screen share so after the buddha spoke his last words he then uh, entered the first absorption, then the first jhana. Then after that, he entered the second jhana, then the, the uh, third, fourth uh, jhanas, then the dimension of infinite space, akasanchayatana, the dimension of infinite consciousness, vinyananchayatana, the dimension of nothingness, akinchayatana, and the dimension of neither perception nor non-perception, neva sanyana sanya yatana. And then he entered the cessation of perception of feeling. Then Venerable Ananda said to Venerable Anarudha, Honorable Anarudha, uh, has the Buddha become fully extinguished? No, Reverend Ananda, he has entered the cessation of perception and feeling. So just a, a tiny little note here on the usage of the honorifics. Notice how the text uses the word ayasma, 
So I translate as venerable. And then we have bante, which when it's a vocative, I use honorable. And then reverend as in avuso. So there, we, this shows that Anarudha, who is the senior of the two, but only by a little bit, uh, was uh, and Ananda uh, adopted the uh, forms that the Buddha recommended only a few minutes previously. Then the Buddha emerged from the cessation of perception and feeling and then entered the dimension of neither perception nor non-perception. Emerging from that, he successively entered into and emerged from the dimension of nothingness, the dimension of infinite consciousness, the dimension of infinite space, the fourth absorption, third absorption, second absorption, and first absorption. Then emerging from that, he successively entered into and emerged from, in, from the second absorption and the third absorption, and then he entered the fourth absorption. Emerging from that, the Buddha immediately became fully extinguished. So the Buddha here is giving a rather uh, spectacular uh, display of his meditation capabilities. And reading, you know, reading the text as is, then uh, the conversation between uh, Anuruddha and Ananda uh, is because Anuruddha was a master of psychic powers. But he was capable of knowing uh, what meditation the Buddha was entering into, whereas Ananda uh, was less accomplished in that regard. Uh, and so he thought that when the Buddha attained the cessation of perception and feeling, that there was such, such a deep stillness in his body, like no, no movement or breath or anything like that. And so Ananda thought that he had died. Um, um, so... Uh, I'm, I'm just going to come back to talk about this passage a little bit. Now, I'm sure most of you are familiar with these meditations, the four jhanas, the four formless attainments, and the cessation of perception of feeling. So these are the kind of um, main sort of core, very profound attainments of samadhi that the Buddha realized and taught during his uh, life and were part of his teaching and practice. Now, of these nine specified attainments here, uh, the first four jhanas are the most central. So these always find a place in the Noble Eightfold Path, in the five Indriyas, the five Balas, the seven awakening factors, the threefold training, basically anywhere that the Buddha gave a, a overarching teaching on his practice, he always included the four jhanas. And so these are regarded as a state where the mind is free from hindrances. And so because the mind is free from hindrances, then you can see the nature of reality very clearly. And so this is how that, uh, those meditation states work. The formless attainments uh, build on those uh, form jhanas uh, and the classical description of them says that they essentially have the same mental factors as the fourth jhana. So they have the same, they have uh, mindfulness, equanimity uh, and so on. But they also that they refine, but the state itself, the state of meditation, becomes more and more refined with those uh, factors through infinite space, infinite consciousness. The form jhanas, or what's usually known as the form jhanas or rupa jhanas, are known as form jhanas because there is present in those some kind of echo of a material uh, presence or material phenomenon. Typically, this is the light, which these days we will call the nimitta in meditation. 
And so when we see a nimitta in meditation, we see a light, then in Pali, this is called a rupa. And it is has it's not it's not material in the sense of existing in the material world, but it's material in the sense that it has it's it's a it's an inner perception, a mental perception of material qualities. This is one of the fundamental distinctions between the idea of rupa, as uh, in Buddhism, and the idea of matter or form, as considered in Western philosophy. So in Buddhism, I'm not sure exactly on this point how the uh, other Indian philosophies play out. It would be interesting to see whether they're similar to Buddhism in this regard. But certainly in Buddhism, a, a, a form can be perceived, rupa kanda can be perceived entirely in the mind. So if you imagine, uh, say, a house or a camel in your mind, then this is rupa and it belongs to the rupa kanda because it has material properties such as colour or shape or position. And so even though it doesn't actually correspond to anything physically, and so this is also called sukuma rupa or subtle form. So in these form jhanas, there is this sukuma rupa or subtle form, which typically is the subjective experience of a light, which is a reflection or an echo of the meditation which brought you into that uh, state. And so usually that's these days is called a nimitta, although in the suttas, the word nimitta doesn't actually mean that. The word nimitta has a different sense in the suttas. In the suttas, the word nimitta means uh, an aspect of experience which you pay attention to in order to promote the growth of similar kinds of properties. For example, uh, the samatha, uh, the, the uh, samatha nimitta is the sign of tranquility. And what that means is that you pay attention to things in your mind that help your mind to become more tranquil. Or the paggaha nimitta is the sign of exertion. So you pay attention to things that tend to uplift or make you, make you stronger or make you more energetic, and then that gives rise to those properties. So this is what the word nimitta means in the suttas. It's quite a subtle kind of sense. And it doesn't really correspond exactly to uh, uh, like a to uh, sort of a readily available concept in in modern meditation studies. But that's generally speaking what the word nimitta means in meditation contexts in the suttas. So I'm explaining all of this because it is a point of confusion, and it's important that when you hear different meditation teachers talking about these things, that you understand what it is that they're actually talking about. Obviously, we're change meanings over time that's not a problem but just we want to understand what someone's actually referring to in that particular case so to come back to our text for, for first form jhana so these are profound states of stillness of mind and their profundity is echoed in this context as in so many other contexts by showing how close it is to the buddha's experience of parinibbana Elsewhere, the four jhanas are called Dikteva Dhamma Nibbana, the Nibbana in this very life, for that same reason, because the mind is so pure and so clear that the experience is very close to that of Nibbana. And so the Buddha is demonstrating this here, uh, and I think this demonstration has a few purposes. I think that it uh, is showing the importance of these meditations in Buddhism, and I think it's also reinforcing for the Buddha uh, the fact that he's 
own mental faculties are undimmed even as he draws so close to his death. And so his body was falling apart, but his mastery of the mind was unaffected. Uh, the formless attainments, or the called in, Buddha, in, in early Buddhism, these are called ayatanas or dimensions. So an ayatana is literally something that is stretched out, so a dimension or a field. And so these dimensions uh, of infinite space and so on uh, are, are essentially what is left behind when that rupa disappears. So if you have a perception of light in your meditation, which the sutta is called obhasa or papasara, uh, then that disappears and the empty space where that light was is the dimension of infinite space. Getting very bit weird here, right? These are getting very subtle states of meditation and they're getting a bit weird. Uh, then the infinite consciousness is where even the perception of that infinite space disappears and there's only the consciousness that was aware of infinite space. And this idea of infinite consciousness was a pre-Buddhist concept. We find that mentioned explicitly in the teachings of Yajnavalkya in the Brihadaranika in his, his uh, discourse with his wife, uh, Maitreyi, uh, and he refers to the Brahman, which is the cosmic Atman, as being uh, the Anantang Vinyana, the infinite consciousness. So for him, this state was... Uh, was the, the goal of the spiritual life, the, the realization that he was practicing for. The Buddha, of course, rejected this idea. Uh, beyond infinite consciousness, then when that consciousness goes, then there's just nothingness. And there's just that perception of the infinite nothingness. And then when not even that perception is still there, but there's not also not quite not perception, right? Then we call this neither perception nor non-perception. And so this is all getting very, very abstruse. And um, uh, finally, then when that last bit of perception goes completely, that we call this the cessation of perception and feeling. And that experience of the cessation of perception and feeling is the most profound of all meditation states. And it is one that is essentially the experience of Nibbana in this life, but differentiated from Nibbana because it is still temporary. You will emerge from it. However, they do say that when emerging from it, if you are not uh, an anagami or arahant by that point, you will become because of the power of insight from that meditation. So powerful is it regarded within the tradition. So now all of these are very uh, beautiful and very powerful states of meditation. And, of, of course, many treaties and many uh, uh, discussions and so on are concerned about this. Let me give you a couple of anecdotes from my experience as a monk about how these things are handled in the forest tradition. One lesson I heard about these states was when I was at Bodhinyana and uh, they were doing some... Um, uh, uh, they were doing some renovations on my hut. So there was a building crew, a few monks were there, and they were helping to build the walking path on my hut. And so I went down to just see how they were going, and uh, Ajahn Brahm was there laying bricks, and all of the junior monks were there talking about formless jhanas. And it was a very interesting just to see that little difference that Ajahn <laughs> Ajahn Brahm wasn't talking about formless jhanas. He was laying bricks and all the young monks were sitting there talking about the formless attainment. So that was an interesting little lesson for me there. Another one I got from a uh, monk. Some of you may know Ajahn Dunn, 
who's a one of the senior uh, monks in Ajahn Chah's tradition. And I was at his monastery uh, many years ago, and somebody asked him about the formless attainments, and he just looked at the monk, again, a junior monk who asked this question, and he just said to him, you can't even get Upachara yet. Why are you asking about formless attainments? And so... <laughs> So you can see the kind of the uh, that like it's fine to to think about these things and study them and so on, right? But just just like take it with a bit of humility and you know take it these are things to um, it's okay to have something that is there to evoke wonder. You know maybe we you know unless we've experienced these things ourselves we don't really know. And but it's something there that makes you go makes you makes you contemplate the vastness of human consciousness and the depth of potential for human transformation. So don't be in a hurry to, like, wrap these things up and say that you kind of understand them and you get them and all of these kinds of things. It's okay to have something there which is okay. You can get some idea of it, but also there's a vastness there. And sometimes... Um, sometimes we have to grow into that vastness before we can truly appreciate it. Okay, let me uh, share the screen again and continue on. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> when the Buddha became fully extinguished, then there was a great earthquake, awe-inspiring and hair-raising, and thunder cracked the sky. So uh, this echoes uh, what we've seen of earthquakes in the uh, earlier part of the Mahaparinibbana, which I can't even recall if we discussed that bit. Anyway, let's move on. So now we have uh, the series of verses which were given in homage to the Buddha's Parinibbana. Uh, and each one of these uh, spoken by a person of some significance. And in each case, uh, the verses echo something of the nature and the character of that person. First comes up Brahma Sahampati. All creatures in this world must lay down this bag of bones. For even a teacher such as this, unrivaled in the world, the realized one attained to power. The Buddha became fully extinguished. Uh, so uh, just check the notes. Uh, so uh, Sahampati here is um, giving a, a a teaching of a a grandiosity and a magnificence, and he's emphasizing the uh, the splendor of the Buddha within the scope of the world himself, and so making this powerful generalization. Uh, that all creatures must lay down this bag of bones, the samusayang. And, um, of course, this verse having a particular potency coming from Brahma himself, who, if anyone is going to live forever, surely it's going to be Brahma. And so he's giving this, this um, uh, perspective to uh, confirm that even he uh, is still subject to those laws of impermanence. Next uh, one, we have Saka, the Lord of Gods. Now, of course, Saka as the Lord of Gods uh, is Vedic Indra or the Buddhist evolution of Vedic Indra. And um, he he's Lord of Gods in a sort of, sort of limited uh, sense. Uh, he's uh, in charge of the realm of 33. 
uh, and of course, he's perhaps the, of all of the various deities known in Buddhism, he's the one we get to know personally uh, the best. Uh, and uh, here, uh, Saka says, Oh, conditions are impermanent. Their nature is to rise and fall. Having arisen, they cease. Their stilling is true bliss. So here, Saka is uh, repeating a verse found elsewhere. So unlike Brahma, whose verses uh, appear to be his own creation, uh, as perhaps he's the creation god, so that may be, uh, may be significant, I'm not sure. Anyway, so um, Saka's a bit more, um, uh, a bit more, how do I put this? Uh, it's a bit, verse is a bit more kind of basic in the sense he's just copying a verse that the Buddha already spoke, um, but also... Um, it reflects his own nature uh, as a stream enterer. So according to the tradition, he was a stream enterer at this point, uh, and the insight of a stream entry is into impermanence and rise and fall. So uh, this seems to be reflecting that to some degree. Next, we have Venerable Anurudha. Now, Anurudha was, uh, along with Ananda, one of the Buddha's family members, uh, who went forth, uh, after the sasana had already become uh, established, and he was renowned for his meditative prowess, and we've already seen an example of that. So Anuruddha uh, said, there was no more breathing for the poised one of steady heart, imperturbable, committed to peace. The sage has done his time. He put up with painful feelings without flinching. The liberation of his heart was like the extinguishing of a lamp. And so we can see there with Anuruddha's verse that it focuses very strongly on the breath, uh, and this, of course, suits his character as a master of anapanasati, a master of mindfulness of breathing. And so he sees this in terms of the completion or the culmination of this meditation practice, uh, and even the, the state of liberation that he speaks of at the end, uh, of the going out, the, the liberation of his heart was like the extinguishing of a lamp. And, of course, using this very common imagery within the suttas of Nibbana as being the extinguishing of a lamp or the extinguishing of a flame. Uh, but here uh, it's contextualized within that process of mindfulness of breathing and the cessation uh, of the breathing. And so just as the, uh, uh, the Buddha, when he's passed away, will breathe no more in the same way uh, his heart has gone out. Uh, finally, uh, Ananda's verse, again, very uh, personal, very distinctive. Then there was terror. Then they had goosebumps when the Buddha, endowed with all fine qualities, became fully extinguished. Uh, so uh, very different from Anuruddha's verse, uh, Ananda responding to the um, uh, distress which was experienced within the Buddhist community. And we see uh, in the verse, the next paragraph below, that same contrast that we've already seen uh, brought back again, that those who are not free of desire, uh, falling down like their feet were chopped off, rolling back and forth, lamenting, too soon has the Blessed One become extinguished, too soon the Holy One has become fully extinguished, too soon the eye of the world has vanished. But those who are free of desire, endured, mindful and aware, thinking conditions are permanent, how could it possibly be otherwise? And so that, you know, you can see that, that, that Anuruddha and Ananda are kind of sort of gently uh, identifying or evoking each side of that 
dichotomy, if you like, yeah, and Arudha emphasizing the uh, the peace and the stillness that comes with the passing away, whereas Ananda uh, noticing and empathizing with the distressed experienced among the Buddhist community. And I think that this this dichotomy is so is such an important. Um, part, and I know I've mentioned this a number of times before, but it's such an important dimension in the whole of the evolution of Buddhism. Now, the suttas have this way of talking where often they will kind of present the kind of poles, right, the poles of things. So on, on the one hand, there's those who are like, yes, yes I'm completely equanimous, so I have no response at all. And on the other hand, there are those who are like literally wailing around and falling on the ground. Now, probably most of us have been faced with the death of somebody we love, and probably most of us fell somewhere in between those two poles and maybe a bit more to one side or the other, depending on what time it is. But it's also kind of unpredictable, and we often respond in irrational ways that you wouldn't expect grief will hit us when we last expect it. And so these, by holding, I think, these two poles and reflecting them in the verses, uh, this sutta is giving space for the growth of the Buddhist community in, in a broad way and acknowledging that uh, we all have a, a place there and between these two poles we will all find ourselves. Uh, and, and in that dynamic... Um, this gives us uh, something to, it gives us a set of values and something to aspire to. And that's precisely what Anuruddha moves on to uh, talk about next. And I'm just coming back to Sutta. Anuruddha addressed the mendicants. Enough, reverence. Do not grieve or lament. Did not the Buddha prepare us for this when he explained that we must be parted and separated from all we hold dear and beloved? How could it possibly be so? that what is born, created, conditioned and liable to wear out should not wear out. The deities are complaining. But, sir, what kind of deities are you thinking of? There are an under deities who, both in the sky and on the earth, who are percipient of the earth. With head disheveled and arms raised, they fall down like their feet were chopped off, rolling to forth and lamenting. But those who are free of desire, mindful and aware, think conditions are impermanent. How could it possibly be otherwise? Then uh, Anuruddha and uh, Ananda spent the rest of the night talking about Dhamma. Now, that's an interesting little insert there, isn't it? I wonder what they were talking about. And uh, it would have been nice if somebody had um, put the tape recorder on uh, because I'm sure that would, be, would have been a fascinating conversation. However, <clears throat> it was not to be. And Anuruddha said to Ananda, go, Ananda, into Kusinara and inform the Malas, Vasetas, the Buddha has become fully extinguished, please come at your convenience. So you can see here that Anuruddha is taking that leadership position uh, and Ananda is the one who's going to be responsible for, if you like, the management responsibilities in the Sangha. Uh, and this was the case even earlier, uh, and we find this distinction uh, between Anuruddha and Ananda in other places as well. Ananda was much more reserved, much more um, on retreat and in meditation, uh, and Ananda was uh, helping to organise and bring the community together. Um, so Ananda in the morning entered Kusinara with a companion. Now at that time the mullahs of Kusinara were sitting together at the meeting hall still on the same business. A little detail in the translation here. 
Uh, most uh, translations that I've seen have said that they are sitting uh, engaged in some business or other, which is from the previous one. But here it says, Honti so they, they were engaged in that same business. In other words, since the previous night, they've been sitting in the hall, uh, still going on. And this, I think, is a wonderful example for all of us. The next time that we're sitting on a, uh, a Zoom meeting or some other kind of meeting that seems to go on forever, then we can identify with the mullahs of Kusinara who were sitting all night in the same meeting. Okay. Ananda went up to them and announced, Vasettas, the Buddha has become fully extinguished. Please come at your convenience. I think I mentioned this earlier, but just to repeat, the reason that they are referred to as Vasettas is because the um, the Purohita or the high family priest of the clan uh, would have been of the Vashishta or Vasetta lineage. And when uh, there's a uh, anointment, a coronation of the ruler of the Mullahs, whether as in the Mullahs case, a temporary ruler or uh, of a, a, a lifetime king, uh, then they take on the lineage name of the Purohita who performed that ceremony. Uh, and this is sort of one of the ways that the Brahmins and the Katiyas sort of develop this codependent uh, relationship in Indian rulership. So this is why the Mullahs are referred to as the Vasettas. <clears throat> when they heard what Ananda had to say, the Mullahs, their sons, daughters-in-law and wives became distraught, saddened and grief-stricken. Some with hair dishevelled and arms raised, falling down like their feet were chopped off, rolling back and forth, lamented, too soon the Blessed One has become fully extinguished, too soon the Holy One has become fully extinguished, too soon the eye of the world has vanished. Right. And the mothers ordered their men, go and um, go, my men, collect fragrances and garlands and all the musical instruments in Kusinara. And taking those fragrance and garlands and all the musical instruments and 500 pairs of garments, they went to the Malian Sal Grove at Upavatana and approached the Buddha's corpse. They spent the day honouring, respecting, revering and venerating the Buddha's corpse with dance and song and music and garlands and fragrances and making awnings and setting up pavilions. So what a party. I mean, those guys are going all out and they are not just, uh, you know, not just putting up a bit of decoration or not just something like that, but they are literally getting together all of the instruments in the whole of the city and coming together to have the most outrageous rave recorded in the entire history of the party canon. And good on them, I say, right? Why not, right? Live it up. Life is short. And you've got an excuse to both party and also make merit at the same time. What could possibly be better? So this is like, I think, a really nice example uh, that in the Buddhist tradition, especially Theravada Buddhist tradition, often has this kind of uh, uh, reputation as being a bit dour, a bit kind of, uh, you know, looking down on, on entertainment and all of these kinds of things. But, of course, don't, remember, don't forget that these are for monastics, so we take renunciate vows. But for lay people, there's always been a side of the religious practice which is very celebratory. Uh, and, you know, you go to Sri Lanka and they will get out their drums and they will they, they will hit those drums very very hard and make a a very large noise 
and uh, the fantastic uh, drumming from Sri Lanka and Thailand. They have these amazing uh, ceremonies and so on that they do. And so there's always this celebratory aspect uh, to Buddhism and Buddhist practice, which is the uh, the celebrations of the malas uh, is a good example of here. Uh, okay. Um, so after they partied all night, then they thought, oh, it's too late to cremate the Buddhist corpse today. Let's do it tomorrow. Very relatable to anybody who's partied a little bit too hard. Uh, oh, it's too late to do the washing up today. We'll just uh, do it tomorrow. Uh, anyway, so they did the same thing the next day, third, second, fourth, up to the seventh day. Okay, finally. Uh, Honouring, revering and venerating the Buddha's corpse with dance and song and music and fragrances, let's carry it to the south of the town and cremate it there outside the town. Uh, notice that the word to cremate uh, is jhapesama, uh, from the same root jha as the word jhana is. Uh, now, the same, at that time, eight of the leading malas, having bathed their heads and dressed in unworn clothes, said, we shall lift the Buddha's corpse. Um, and, but they were unable to do so. The malas said to Anurudha, what is the cause? What's the reason? Why these eight Malian chiefs are unable to lift the Buddha's corpse? Well, says you have one plan, but the deities have a different one. What's the deity's plan? You plan to carry the Buddha's corpse to the south of the town. The deities plan to carry the Buddha's corpse to the north of the town, then to enter the town by the northern gate, carry it through the centre of the town, leave by the eastern gate and cremate it there at the Malian shrine named Coronation. Uh, so... Um, I mean, clearly there's a clearly there's a um, like a symbolic significance to the directions here, um, and which I don't want to sort of try to unpack too much. But it's worth bearing in mind that the directions always have um, have like a symbolic meaning or symbolic sense, and they're often associated with different deities or with different rituals and so on. Anyway, so now at the same time, at that sorry, now at that time, the whole of Kusimanara was covered knee deep with the flowers of the flame tree, without gaps even on the filth and the rubbish heaps. Then the deities and the malas of Kusinara carried the Buddha's corpse to the north of the town uh, while venerating it. Then they entered by the northern gate, carried it through the centre of the town, left by the eastern gate, and deposited the corpse there at the Malian shrine named Coronation. Then the mother said to Anurudha, how do we proceed when it comes to uh, the corpse and then gives the instructions on how to deal with the corpse as was given by the Buddha uh, earlier. Wrap the corpse with, uh, uh, woven, uh, with unworn cloth then with carded cotton, then again with unworn cloth, 500 double layers, place it in an iron case filled with oil and close it up with another case, build a funeral pyre out of all kinds of fragrant substances and then cremate the, the corpse. So this, of course, is very interesting from like an anthropological point of view because it's giving very specific details as to how uh, cremation of a very venerated person was done in those days. Uh, so that's what they did. Now, at that now this now we're coming to uh, another now we're coming to okay so so like think about this in terms of um, narrative and narrative uh, 
narrative structure. So we've we've had the uh, the Buddha being challenged in Rajagaha, and that tension of the um, like the allegiance to the spiritual ideals of the Dhamma versus the worldly exigencies of power and dominion has set into place the narrative unfolding of the sutta. Uh, and now that, that in a sense, has been resolved, right? So the Buddha's died, the funeral's happened, all of those things have, have, have happened more or less. And... Uh, and the plot, and the, like, if you like, the plot has almost been resolved, right? But we haven't actually lit the funeral pyre yet, right? So the plot has just got like one more point before it's finally done. But just before that point where it's going to be done, we're introducing a new plot, which is then going to open up a whole new mess of drama, okay? And that new mess of drama is then going to propel the story through the end of the Mahaparinibbana Sutta into the first council and then the second council. And so that mess of drama then uh, consists of essentially of the question of what is the Sangha going to do now that the Buddha is not there to tell us what to do? And uh, so here we see this unfolding with uh, Mahakasapa. Oh, my goodness. So much drama. Okay. Then at that time, Mahakasapa was travelling on the road from Pava to Kusinara together with a large Sangha of about 500 mendicants. He left the road and sat at the root of a tree. Now, uh, of course, um, we've seen Pava uh, earlier in the story uh, and we know that, that it has a narrative or literary association with strict monks. This was where Chunda uh, fed the Buddha his last meal. Uh, so Mahakasapa, of course, being the most renowned as the most ascetic of the monks in the uh, early Sangha. Unusual for him to be travelling with a big group of monks like that. Normally he's alone. Anyway, now at that time a certain Ajivaka ascetic had picked up a flame tree flower in Kusinara and was travelling along the road to Pava. So the mention of the Ajivaka ascetic here is yet another instance of narrative echoing uh, because the first... Uh, person that the Buddha met after his enlightenment was an Ajivaka ascetic, uh, and so here uh, there's this, 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 uh, these, these narratives have this uh, uh, narrative closure here. Uh, so the um, yeah, so when he when he brought that flower to Mahakasapa, I believe that this may be the origin of the flower sermon, which became famous in later Zen Buddhism. Uh, but again, be that as it may, <clears throat> um, Mahakasapa asked him, uh, Reverend, do you, know, do you know much about our teacher? Yes, Reverend. Yes, two days ago, the ascetic Gotama became fully extinguished. From there, I picked up this flame tree flower. And some of the mendicants there who were not free from desire and once again uh, the same dichotomy that we have seen before. At that time, a monk named Subhadda, who had gone forth when old, was sitting in that assembly. He said to those mendicants, enough, reverend, do not grieve or lament. We are well rid of this great ascetic and we are oppressed by him saying, this is allowable for you, this is not allowable for you. Well, now we should do what we want and not do what we don't want. Sounds great. Excellent. So Subhadda certainly knows uh, how to... Uh, how to seize the moment and win himself some friends. 
Then Mahakasapa addressed the mendicants, enough, reverence, do not grieve or lament. Did not the Buddha prepare us for this when he explained that we must be parted and separated from all we hold dear and beloved? How could it possibly be so that what is born, created, conditioned and liable to wear out should not wear out even the Buddha's body? Now at that time, four of the leading malas, having bathed their heads and dressed in unworn clothes, said we shall light the Buddha's funeral pyre, but they were unable to do so. They asked Ananda, so they asked Anurudha, and Anurudha explained that it would not light until Mahakasapa came and paid respects. So Mahakasapa came, uh, arranging his robe over one shoulder and raising his joint palms. He respectfully circled the Buddha three times, keeping him on the right and bowed with his head at the Buddha's feet, and the 500 mendicants did likewise. So if you ever uh, visit uh, Kusinara, and uh, you see the beautiful park there and the stupa, which contains the, uh, lo- the large uh, reclining Buddha image, uh, which commemorates the Buddha's passing away. And this is the practice, the normal practice there is that pilgrims will come and they will uh, bow to the Buddha's uh, feet, uh, echoing the practice of Mahakasapa here. When Mahakasapa and the 500 mendicants bowed, the Buddha's funeral pyre burst into flames all by, him, by itself. When the Buddha's corpse was cremated, no ash or soot was found from outer or inner skin, flesh, sinews or synovial fluid. Only the relics remained. The, the, sarir, the uh, sarira, uh, sarirani is the uh, relics. It's like when ghee or oil blaze and burn and neither ashes nor soot are found. And of those 500 pairs of garments, only two were not burned, the innermost and the outermost. But when the Buddha's corpse was consumed, the funeral fire was extinguished by a stream of water that appeared in the sky by water dripping from the sal trees and by the mullah's fragrant water. Then the mullahs made a cage of spears for the Buddha's relics. Interesting, again, interesting anthropological um, idea there in the meeting hall and I surrounded it with a buttress of bows for seven days days they honoured, respected, revered and venerated them with dance and song and music and garlands and fragrances. All right, so so thus concludes the uh, account of the Buddha's funeral and the various uh, celebrations that went on, 14 days of celebrations. And after that, uh, we've, we've already, we've heard that the relics uh, remained. Now, um, and so I talked before about how the um, how this at this point this juncture in the narrative we're kind of sparking off the next sort of round or the next sort of uh, development in Buddhism. One of those we've already seen with uh, Mahakasapa and Subhadda, the um, the emergence of um, the emergence of uh, if you like, uh, the voices of laxism in the Sangha, those people who want to make an excuse, who want to say, look, let's get rid of what the Buddha taught and now we can do what we want. Um, and so this is one movement that became felt. Now, this obviously relates to the dynamic that we were introduced to right at the start of the keeping the Vajian rules and principles not getting rid of them, and then the Buddha then saying Sangha should also not get rid of its rules and principles. But then the Buddha uh, curiously then inviting Ananda to say, well, if you want to, you can get rid of the lesser and minor rules. And then Subhadra says, great, well, let's get rid of all of these rules. Apparently 
I mean, you could argue that Subhadra was merely saying the same thing that the Buddha said. I mean, they both say we can get rid of the rules. Then, of course, this all led up to the first council. So Kasapa's response to this was to say what we need to do is to have a meeting in the Sangha and to agree how we're going to organise ourselves going forward. Uh, and one of the decisions that they made at, the, at that meeting was to say that they would not abolish those lesser and minor rules, but that they would keep them all. And I believe that why this is so, like why this narrative arc is presented in that way is the difference is that these are not being rules that are being imposed by the Buddha. So notice that Subhadra says, you know, we can now, we don't have to be, we're not going to be told what to do. So the Buddha isn't going to be there telling us what to do anymore. So what Mahakasapa's resolution created was a situation where, yes, it's not that the Buddha is telling us what to do. It's that we have chosen to undertake these rules and we henceforth will do them, not because somebody else told us to, but because we decided that that's how we want to live. And so that is that very kind of skillful means that uh, Mahakasapa used to establish the uh, Vinaya and establish the practice of the Sangha going forward. Now, again, the two poles, right? So the poles of the, the, uh, those who are equanimous and those who were distressed. And that maps uh, loosely, not very well, but kind of loosely also onto the Sangha and the lay community will also have been discussed as part of the whole Buddhist community in this, in this thing. Now, um, and so just as Mahakasapa is emerging like a resolution for maintaining the, the, the sasana, keeping the sasana going for the monastics, then the next part of it is very important for how the sasana maintained itself among the lay community, and that is through the preservation and distribution of relics. Now, the idea of relics is not something which we really find in early Buddhism, actually is hardly ever, if at all, spoken about anywhere in Buddhism and is really just being introduced at this portion of the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, a portion which largely was composed at a later date. So um, uh, what we see here is that the lay community is wanting to maintain a, a, an identity of the Buddha through the physical presence of his relics. Let's see how that pans out. Okay. So King Ajatasattu of Magadha, son of the princess of Videha, heard that the Buddha had become fully extinguished at Kusinara. He sent an envoy to the Malas of Kusinara. The Buddha was an aristocrat, and so am I. I, too, de deserve a share of the Buddha's relics. I will build a monument for them and conduct a memorial service. Now, I mean, I mean, it's a bit bold, right? I mean, Ajatasattu has just been saying how he's going to invade all these people, and now he's saying, oh, give me the relics. A bit bold. Also kind of an interesting detail. I mean, I'm, look, I'm not sure how far we should push these things in terms of looking for a historical narrative. But it's kind of interesting that he knew about it, right? I mean, it's a fair distance away. It's taken the Buddha uh, months to sort of walk that way slowly. Now, if you had uh, relay chariots or, or relay horses, you could make it from Kusinara down to Rajagaha and back again. 
maybe in a couple of weeks, something like that, maybe maybe less. Um, so it's possible, but it does kind of suggest that Ajata Sattu had spies uh, who were observing events, which, you know, give, <laughs> seems fairly reasonable assumption to make. Anyway, so the Lichavis also heard the Buddha become fully extinguished at Kusinara, and they said the Buddha was an aristocrat, and so we, we too deserve a share of the Buddha's relics. We will build a monument for them uh, and uh, conduct a memorial service. Again, just notice how the uh, Pali texts are very usually, uh, almost always, I should say, extremely precise in a lot of really small details. Notice how the, the uh, Ajata Sattu says, Bhagavati Katiyo Ahampi Katiyo, I am a Katiya because he was the sole ruling monarch of that kingdom. Whereas the, the uh, Lichavis say, Bhagavapi Katyo, Mayampi Katya. We also are Katyas, we are aristocrats, because they were part of that republic where uh, the uh, uh, Katya class uh, elected rulers to uh, rule, rule, the, uh, rule the country. So even in those, those little differences, you find that the Pali is usually very uh, consistent and very precise. Sakin Zakapalawatu also heard that the Buddha had become fully extinguished at Kusinara, and they sent an envoy saying the Buddha was our foremost relative, Nyati Serto. We too deserve a share of the Buddha's relics. We will build a monument for them and conduct a memorial service, a monument being a, a tupa or stupa. The bullies of Alakapa also heard that the Buddha had become fully extinguished at Kusinara, and asked for a share of the relics on similar grounds. The bullies are um, almost unknown apart from this passage. I haven't been able to trace down any references to them, uh, and they were probably one of the minor clans in that area, uh, as were uh, the Kolians who come up next. And the Kolians were, of course, the clan of Maya, the Buddha's mother, uh, and their nation was neighbouring uh, the Sakyan Republic, so not not far away from where we are now in Kusinara, uh, maybe just a, a day's walk away from Kusinara, a couple of days' walk maybe. The Kolians of Ramagama also heard that the Buddha had become fully extinguished at Kusinara, and they asked for a share of the relics on the same grounds. The Brahman of Weta Deepa, again uh, an unknown figure, uh, presumably a well-known Brahmin of the area, local area. Uh, the, he says the Buddha was an aristocrat and I am a Brahmin. I deserve a share of the Buddha's relics. I will build a monument for them and conduct a memorial service. And the Malas of Pava also heard that the Buddha had become fully extinguished at Kusinara. So notice that there are two groups of Malas here, one from Kusinara and one from Pava, the same tribe, with two main centres not far from each other. Uh, and they also asked for a uh, portion of the relics. And the Malas said the Buddha became fully extinguished in our village district. We will not give away a share of his relics. Oh, my goodness. So that's, this, is, this, is, this is looking problematic. Um, then Dona the Brahmin said to those various groups, Again, the donor just kind of appears out of nowhere in this narrative. We do hear of donors a couple of other places uh, in the suttas. Whether uh, this is the same person or not uh, is impossible to say. 
Uh, and Dona the Brahmin said to those various groups, here, sirs, a single word from me. Our Buddha's teaching was acceptance, kantivaru. It would not be good to fight over a share of the supreme person's relics. Let us make eight portions, good sirs, rejoicing in unity and harmony. Let there be monuments far and wide, so many folk may gain faith in the clear-eyed one. Well then, Brahman, you yourself should fairly divide the Buddha's relics in eight, in eight portions, presumably spoken by the, either by the Malans or by the groups uh, altogether. So Dona, um, uh, <laughs> Dona makes the resolution to the conflict. It could have got very nasty. I mean, we know that tensions were heightened already. And uh, the, Kusinara, the mothers of Kusinara wanted to hold on to them and everyone else wanting their own share. Uh, and as I mentioned at the beginning, that this threat of war uh, is very real. And in fact, this is almost certainly the last time that we see a peaceful resolution uh, among these uh, groups and among these clans. There's threats of war between the Kosalans and Magadans, the Magadans and the Vajis, the Sakyans and the Kolians, the Kolians, Kosalans of the Malas, and the Kosalans and the Sakyans. And so um, quite possibly because of the latter two conflicts, that is the Kosalans were in conflict with the Malas and with the Sakyans, this may be why uh, Widudaba, Pasenadi's son, didn't send an emissary to the funeral. It seems a bit strange that actually the Buddha spent most of his life after his enlightenment in Kosala at Savati, and yet they are conspicuously absent from uh, the funeral. Um, so by sparking conflicts with former allies, the Sakyans and Malas, Widudaba undid the successes of his father and fatally weakened the Kosalan Empire. When the dust settled a few decades later, all of these lands had been consumed by Magadha. Uh, so uh, a breakdown not just of the, the Buddha and his life, but a breakdown of the order and the Buddha's passing uh, was uh, invoked by Dona as being an occasion for uh, reinforcing the peace uh, that was available at the time. So when he had done that, he divided the relics and said to them, sirs, please give me the urn and I should build a monument for it and conduct a funeral memorial service. So they gave Dona the urn. Uh, when the Mauryas of Pipalawana heard that the Buddha had become fully extinguished in Kusinara, they asked for a share of the relics, but they were told that there was no portion of the relics left. They had already been portioned out. Here, take the embers. So they took the embers from the funeral pyre. Mauryas of Pipilawana, of course, also an obscure little tribe that uh, very hardly even heard of at the time of the suttas, uh, but <laughs> that was not to remain the case uh, as uh, Chandragupta the Maurya and then Ashoka the Maurya established the greatest empire of uh, the entirety of Indian history uh, in the years to come. And so this is uh, marks the um, beginning, I guess, of the um, connection between the Mauryas and Buddhism. So that ends the main uh, discourse on the departing uh, on the relics. Now, we then have another passage, almost certainly this other passage added later. In fact, this is confirmed by the commentary, which says it was added at the council. It doesn't say which council, uh, either the first or second council. 
Hingajarasatu of Magadha, the Lichavis of Vesali, the Sakins of Kapilavatu, the Bullies of Alakapa, the Kolians of Ramagama, the Brahman, the Vetadipa, the Malas of Pava, the Malas of Kusinara, the Brahman Dona, and the Mauryas of Pipilavana built monuments for them and conducted memorial services. Thus, there were eight monuments for the relics, a ninth for the urn, and a tenth for the embers. That is how it was in the old days. Uh, and again, these other verses also added even later, and these last verses, according to the commentary, were added by the elders in Sri Lanka. Uh, the last, this last verse, this passage here, was added in the Third Council, and this, the next verse is added by the elders in the Sri Lanka. Now, this is very unusual, and it's, it's one of the very rare occasions when the commentary acknowledges that text is added as late as uh, after the text had already arrived in Sri Lanka. Um, it's, it's, it's not that uncommon for the commentary to say that something was added in the First Council or Second Council. You find this, you know, somewhat frequently, uh, but this is very, very rare. Uh, having said which, uh, certain portions of these verses are also shared with the Sanskrit text, which is from the north of India. So it's not entirely clear that all of it was added in Sri Lanka, but probably most of it was. There were eight shares of the clear-eyed one's relics. Seven were worshipped throughout India, but one share of the most excellent of men were worshipped in Ramagama by a dragon king. No mention of that, of course, in the prose uh, text. One tooth is venerated by the gods of three and thirty, and one is worshipped in the city of Gandhara, another one in the realm of the Kalinga king, and one is worshipped by a dragon king. Again, no mention of tooth relics in the main body of the sutta, and also no uh, mention of these um, sort of mythical or uh, very obscure places. Gandhara being, of course, up in uh, modern-day Afghanistan, Kalinga being on the uh, east coast of India. Through this glory, this rich earth is adorned with the best of... Off and, uh, sorry, and I should mention that these, these places, Gandhara and Kalinga, uh, were not visited by the Buddha and weren't part of the Buddhist realm at that time, but were missionized uh, some time later. Through this, their glory, this rich earth is adorned with the best of offerings. Thus, the clear-eyed one's corpse is well honoured by the honourable. It's venerated by lords of God, dragons and spirits, and likewise venerated by the finest lords of men. Honour it with joined palms when you get the chance, for a Buddha is rare even in a hundred eons. Altogether, 40 even teeth and the body hair and the head hair were carried off individually by gods across the universe. So the emphasis on the tooth relic, of course, uh, reflecting the importance of the tooth relic in Sri Lankan uh, Buddhism uh, and being a very distinctive feature of Sri Lankan devotional practice. So you can see there that the, the idea of the relics is sort of, sort of gathering momentum and it became a really defining feature of Buddhism. If we, were, if we were to ask from a perspective of early Buddhism and what the Buddha taught and what the Buddha practiced then, if we asked did the Buddha teach us to go and worship relics, uh, then the answer would be no. We don't really find that in the suttas. Uh, and if we want to say the Buddha taught us to meditate or to practice the Eightfold Path, uh, then yes, of course, that's what the Buddha taught. However, I think we have to be careful not to be too um, swift to judge others and too swift to dismiss the means 
by which traditional Buddhist communities have maintained the presence of Dhamma throughout all of this time. Uh, It is no mean feat. In fact, it is an incredible accomplishment to maintain and to pass down the Dhamma. The purpose of interring the relics in a stupa is to create a lasting physical presence of the Buddha and that sense of connection. And that has, without doubt, worked. And you can go to India today and worship at many of these places and still see the presence of the Dhamma there. And you can still feel a connection with the living presence of the Dhamma. I mean, it's purely irrational. It's purely an emotional thing. But that doesn't make it any less powerful or any less meaningful. I think these days we have, uh, you know, like for myself, I work mostly with digital texts. And I'm very... um, very cognizant of how ephemeral everything that we're doing is uh, and everything that we're doing can just go disappear in a puff of smoke. Uh, and the means that the Buddhist community has used to to create a lasting and sustaining of the sasana um, uh, have been Uh, successful to an unprecedented degree and I think it's important for us to pay attention to this and to learn what we can from how they have gone about doing that. So that's the I think the end of my what I had to say about Mahaparinibbana Sutta for now anyway. Uh, Well these were actually two comments from me Bhante. One was about the the jhanas and Mahapajapati making a similar tour through the jhanas. Uh, That was one. Uh, I don't know if you'd like to say anything about that or not. And then, yeah. Yeah. Obviously, uh, you know, obviously establishing a kind of a narrative parallelism, right? So these things are done for a very, um, uh, to send a message. Yeah. But no, please go on. Well, the other comment was uh, about, a uh, question that often arises or that has arisen often these days because, um, uh, what is it? Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm suddenly forgetting what the word is for it now, but uh, like euthanasia is now legal in California. So a person mm-hmm. can choose if they wish to come to the end of their life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and normally people aren't using the word suicide for that. And yeah. then the, the topic of how the Buddha and Mahabhajapati passed away and like, if that was intentional or not. And if it's intentional, then what? And, you know, so it's something that's come up for discussion. And I wonder yeah. if you'd like to say anything about that. Um, Oh, I didn't know that that um, those laws have been passed. When when were those laws passed in California? A couple of years ago, okay. before pandemic. Before the pandemic, okay. Uh, so in in Australia, this happened. Um, there was a sort of move in that area quite some time ago, about nearly twenty years ago or something, uh, and it became quite a thing in Australia because the first person who was doing it was a Buddhist, uh, and the the doctor who was sort of uh, organising his name is Philip Nitsky. And so it became a kind of a thing in Australia that, oh, you know, the Buddhists want to do euthanasia because it was just a personal decision by somebody who happened to be a Buddhist. Uh, but because of that, Arjun Brahm uh, invited him to do a panel uh, with us in Perth at the Buddhist conference, and I was asked to be the uh, to moderate that panel. So that was fun. 
Uh, so we got to have a kind of discussion. And what, what really came across to me from him, um, you know, as being the doctor who had pioneered these techniques in Australia, um, was what really came across to me was his, his deep compassion in what he was trying to do. And he, he was only interested in the welfare of his patients and in trying to alleviate suffering. So obviously this is a, a complex area and it's not really, um, we're not going to come to any sort of cut and dry decisions. Uh, but that's, anyway, that's just the impression that I had with that. In terms of what the Buddha did, it's it's hard to say exactly because on the one hand it's a recognition of the fact that his lifespan is at an end but also recognition of the fact that he's going to determine that now it's going to come to an end. And I think that the Mahaparinibbana narrative holds that ambiguity quite deliberately. Um, the Buddha could have prolonged his life, and you could use that as an argument to say against sort of artificial prolongation of life, right, but he just sort of allowed it to come to its natural course of events. But on the other hand, you know, he took his medicines and, you know, looked after himself the best that he could. So I don't know if we're going to get any clear-cut answers from something like Mahaparinibbana, but I do think that at the end of the day, uh, you know, bear in mind the um, the golden rule. It seems to be one of the places where where the golden rule is violated almost entirely. I mean, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. And I'm I've don't think I'm yet to meet a single person who would say, yes, please keep me alive under any circumstances and just keep my heart beating as long as possible, no matter what my quality of life is. Uh, And yet when it comes to making that decision for others, we tend to be a lot more reluctant. There's another side to it. I don't know if you're interested to continue with this or you want to go on. Uh, Please go on, yeah. So a few weeks ago, Wisdom Publications hosted one of their live online things, and it was on Tuktam, which is in Tibetan Buddhism, when um, someone who's an advanced practitioner then enters into, I don't maybe jhanas, uh, enters into a kind of deep meditative state, and their heart may have stopped, their breath may have stopped, but they might still be sitting up, and there's no signs yeah. of decay. And we've seen that amongst a number of our local Bay Area meditators, especially those who've developed jhana practice, yeah. that also when they passed away, then there is not like a sign of decomposition of their body or some, sometimes yeah. the room gets really bright like our friend Margaret uh, or you know other things like this and so there's a question you know when they were talking about the tukdam they said that they shouldn't be disturbed right. and that this is a really important time and even they're using language like the jhana like burning off right as a kind of burning off that this is a very important time for the maturation and completion of many kinds of sankaras and karmas. And this is very valuable was the way it was being talked about. But mostly for most of us here, the way the legal stuff is set up, they're going to be like ready to get the body out the door and get everything like done fast. And so questions have been coming up about that also. Would you like to comment? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you see, even in Mahaparinibbana, you see that that even Anuruddha and Ananda were not, you know, not clear about exactly when the 
when the time the Buddha passed away. So, yeah, sure, definitely this can be the case. I don't know if you, you, you've probably heard there's an old story that Ajahn Brahm used to tell about this, one of the people at the Buddha Society in Perth. And I, I met the fellow in question some years after these events happened. And uh, so the way the story goes, and this is just my hazy memory, but the way the story goes is that he was sitting at home in meditation, went into a very deep meditation, and uh, his wife was preparing lunch or something like that, and she said, oh, darling, lunch is ready. Didn't hear back. Lunch is, <laughs> lunch is ready. What's happening? Goes, knocks on the door. He's just sitting there in meditation, touches him. He doesn't move. So she starts to panic, calls the hospital. Ambulance comes. Guys, medics come, put him on the stretcher, run him out, put him in the ambulance, doing CPR, screaming through the streets of Perth with the siren blazing, rush him into the hospital, bring him into the operating theatre. And he's just completely out, nothing. And he was having actually out-of-body experiences at this time, like I've talked to him about the experiences happening. He wasn't like completely absorbed necessarily during this whole period, but he, you know, at times he was like floating down the corridor of the hospital and various kinds of things. Until eventually one of the doctors who was Indian uh, had, uh, you know, some understanding of meditation and he said, look, maybe he's just in a deep meditation, just leave him. And so they left him and after a while he came out of the meditation. He went back home and his wife said, don't you ever do that again. (laughs) 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 So it is a good argument for having uh, multicultural staff in hospitals because you never know when that kind of background is going to become in handy. Um, But, yeah, look, I don't have any clear-cut arguments about that, but I agree that that definitely is uh, quite likely that those kinds of mistakes would be made. Yeah. Yeah. I, if I could get to some of the other questions that, that folks here have. Absolutely. Yeah, sure. How, how are you going, by the way? Oh, not bad. I'm glad to, to join you today. Yeah, no, good to see you. Um, yeah, all right, let's continue. All right. So do you want me to go through the chats or you want to take questions? I've got the new, I've got the new, I've got a few new chats here, but maybe you want to do the old ones so we don't lose them. Okay, uh, so Mao Lee asked, uh, were there any Bukuni in the first council or any other council? Uh, do we have any more detailed information slash documentation on the councils, even the most recent one? Uh, so unfortunately, no. Uh, I think the Buddha's intention was that the uh, recitation be done among the fourfold Sangha, but when it was actually done by, organized by Mahakasapa, um, he made it into a Vinaya meeting. And when you have a vineyard meeting, it's only the bhikkhus or only the bhikkhunis who are present. Uh, and so, unfortunately, no, according to the main historical records anyway, there wasn't any bhikkhunis at the councils. Um, do we have historical records? Well, the vineyards include the records of the council, the first and second councils. Uh, and so, you know, they're, they're obviously a very crucial record. There is a third council recorded in the Pali commentaries, although... Uh, It's only found in the Pali tradition Uh, and various other councils through history uh, coming down to the most recent is the sixth council in Myanmar. Um, And um, I mean, honestly, not that easy to find really good accounts of what actually happened at the sixth council in Myanmar. And these days the texts that we use including the text on Soto Central, are, are descended from the redaction of the canon produced at that Sixth Council. 
but uh, to be honest, I've never seen a really detailed uh, actual reportage on what went down at the council, um, apart from the basic details. So that would be interesting. I don't know if any uh, historical scholars would be interested to uh, excavate that. Uh, Rob. Uh, Patsy was asking for a definition of wheel-turning monarch. Uh, definition of a wheel-turning monarch. The wheel-turning monarch is an ideal uh, king, essentially a mythological figure, who uh, is. Um, it's like a. It's it's a. Um, it's a kind of a Buddhist adaptation of the um, the Vedic horse sacrifice, uh, which uh, establishes without uh, violence or. Um, or oppression, uh, a realm from ocean to ocean uh, run according to the Dhamma and according to principle. And so this is this idea which is presented in a mythological context in the suttas uh, of an ideal monarch. Uh, it's debatable whether there's been anybody in history who has really lived up to those ideals, although obviously King Ashoka would be the closest example. Rob? Um, another question, if any of the eight relic monuments mentioned still exist. Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, hard to say exactly, because typically what happens with these things is that they get uh, built and then rebuilt over the years. So that typically there might be just like a small one there. Uh, they then might get taken out like they, because apparently King Ashoka took them out and spread them further. So the original monument might be demolished, put back together, and then later on built and built and built. So these things are kind of like onions. There's many layers of them. But some of them, uh, the sites are still known. I think Kusinara, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the Bajis, where the Ashoka pillar is in Vesali. Uh, and probably some of the others. So there's at least some where uh, we have a fairly good uh, idea where the uh, relics are, and they may still be. There are a couple other questions which I might just skip, just because, I, you know, like on the jhanas and things like that, they're probably way too long. We, we don't ha we don't have much time left, so I probably don't want right. to go down that that road. <laughs> uh, so yeah, maybe, very, very maybe, maybe there's a few more questions that came in that you have the. <laughs> The chat for sure. yeah, sure. I've got these those new ones. So from Gita, how's it going, Gita? Um, uh, thank you for sharing this beautiful sutta with all of us. Oh, well, my absolute pleasure, Gita. Um, may I enjoy longevity with great health and shower the Dhamma with all of us. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Oh, well, that's very nice. Thank you so much, Gita. Uh, Kaz uh, asks, how's it going, Kaz? Um, explaining the important sutta. Mixture of early and later parts. Which which do I which parts do I recommend to take as more important? Um, how do I put this? Uh, to me, uh, all of the different parts have an importance, and the purpose of historical scholarship is not to uh, dismiss parts and say, well, this doesn't matter because it was later, but it's to try to understand more deeply the meaning of different passages in terms of the uh, what it meant to the people at that time and that place. And so it's about coming to a more layered understanding uh, where 
uh, we can see uh, the, the particularity and the changes in the historical circumstances and how that is reflected and mirrored in people's understanding of things. And so to me, it's not, I, I try not to think of it in terms of like, you know, more important or less important, but try to look at it in terms of what can I learn from those different uh, aspects. Uh, uh, Robert, okay, so uh, Robert Hunt mentions that in Dunedin in 2012, Venerable Rinpoche's Sangha were allowed to leave him in death meditation for 18 days without deterioration before the medical authority then insisted on cremation or burial. Crikey. Well, <laughs> I hope, I hope he was really dead. That's all I can say. That would have been very, very inconvenient. Yeah. But it is interesting, though, isn't it? I mean, then these stories are not, you know, not, um, I mean, these are not just kind of mythical events. I mean, these are real people in real times and places. And it's not that, I mean, it's fairly unusual in a sense, but it's not, it's not, it's not that unusual. It does seem to happen. Anyway. Uh, Charles Lee asks, are there any tradition of lay people putting on theatrical performances of the Mahaparinibbana Sutta? Not as far as I know, but it's, I think it's a good idea. It would be an interesting uh, concept. People do like act out different parts of things. So that, you know, in a way, like performing the rituals is in a way kind of acting out, like I mentioned, bowing to the feet of the, the reclining Buddha in the Mahaparinibbana or going on the pilgrimage. So in a sense, the performance of these rituals is in a way acting things out. Um, but uh, the Buddhist traditions did have, there were sort of theatrical traditions of presenting jatakas and things like that, but I've not heard of traditions of presenting Mahaparinibbana Sutta. It may be the case that um, the suttas were felt to be too sacred to be presented in that way. I think the Jataka is probably a little bit more profane uh, and a little bit more rewarding presented in that way. Um, um, okay, so Mali asks, if we have time, can Bhante say in a few words about how Sutta and Vinaya were formalised, conserved and transmitted during the Buddha's time and perhaps until the end of Kimishnaka? <laughs> uh, thank you so much for your faith, Mali. I think that's very, your confidence in my ability to do that is... It's very, uh, very, very nice to hear. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I can, um, I think we're a bit over time. And I honestly don't know if I can say enough about those things to uh, make uh, all that much sense. Uh, but let me just say this. Uh, according to my understanding, um, the, the Dhamma and Vinaya, as preserved in the, as we today in the Suttas and the Vinaya, were more or less, and without being all fundamentalist about it, were more or less formed in the time after the Buddhist Parinibbana, and that's usually located at the First Council, and then were more or less held in common among the Buddhist community for the next couple of hundred years, until the time of Ashoka or a little bit later. And it's from that time that the Sangha began to diverge and to form uh, different schools of Dhamma. But those different schools of Dhamma all inherited versions of the suttas and the Vinaya, all of which were more or less uh, similar. Uh, and typically what happened, the traditions were quite conservative in maintaining the suttas and the Vinaya, but they developed their new doctrines by adding new texts on top of that.
And so in Pali, that's with the Abhidhamma and commentarial texts and other traditions did that as well. And so the suttas and the vinya have always been the shared basis uh, that uh, provides a common ground for all the different traditions of Buddhism. Uh, so again, without wanting to take... I could do another course on that question, but anyway, we'll leave it at that for now. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Thank you so much, everybody, for coming. Uh, and thanks so much to Rob and all the folks at the Sati Centre for helping to put this on and making it all possible. And also a special thanks to all of the good folks at Zoom for making this possible. And uh, without them, their uh, world would have collapsed this last few years. But anyway, congratulations. Mm -hmm. uh, and, yeah, may you all thrive in the Dhamma, and I hope to see you all again soon.